Look up idiots in the dictionary. You know what you'll find? A picture of me? No! The definition of the word idiot, which you fucking are! Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to I Do Movies Badly, a podcast exploration of my cinematic ignorance. I am your host, Jim Rohner, and despite being an amateur film critic since 2006, I am woefully ignorant of many films, filmmakers, and genres that Consensus has deemed important, and thus I have created this podcast to document my journey into cinematic edification. This month, I'm exploring some comedies of or from Ealing Studios, as recommended by Gavin Mevius of The Mixed Reviews, and in this week's episode, I'll be wrapping up the theme and wrapping up the month with the 1955 film, The Lady Killers. I'm going to apologize ahead of time. This might be a little bit of a rough episode. Full disclosure, I didn't really take notes for this one just for a variety of factors. Coming off a long holiday weekend, mentally slow, kind of trying to get back into the groove of the workday and, you know, having some things to do, was having some problems with my phone, so that was taking my attention for most of the day. So I didn't really get around to taking um, a lot of detailed uh, notes as I typically do for each episode. Um, but also on top of that, I, I generally just don't think I have too much to say in regards to anything that's going to be um, relevatory or, um, uh, or, or, or or new in regards to what I've already kind of talked about across the, the, the this month and the last two episodes with Kind Hearts and Coronets and uh, The Man in the White Suit. Um, the, conti- the theme that had been established has continued. This was an absolutely delightful film. I had a fun time watching it. Um, it was something that was so... I don't use this word very often when I'm talking about movies because it has sort of a, a derogatory puritanical context to it, but this film was so wholesome, uh, was so innocent and not earnest, but it was just, it was, it was fun. Um, and it's not that it wasn't ambitious, but it didn't really aspire to be any more than it was, which was just a, a real good time. Just a, a time when I can kind of sit um, enjoy myself for an hour and a half, kind of have a few chuckles, and just kind of really have a good time just sitting and watching a movie, um, which I think is is important because, um, as I even say in the intro, you know, I, I cover on this podcast films which consensus has deemed important. Um, a lot of times the connotation to that is they are, uh, the, the films where the filmmakers are, are pieces of art or, or they're from auteurs, or this is something which has change the cinematic landscape um and it's nice to be reminded every now and again that um a film can exist without without changing the landscape a film can just exist uh on its own terms and those terms just being um being a a good entertaining film kind of using the cinematic language to tell a good visual story um and alexander mckendrick the the director of um, the Lady Killers, who had also um, directed um, the the previous film, The Man in the White Suit, um, is is I believe this was his uh, his last film that he did with Ealing Studios. Um, he he's a talented filmmaker, and he does that. He tells a good story. He knows where to put the camera. You know, the, there's the cuts make sense, the story makes sense, the acting is delightful, the characters are are well flushed out by um, screenwriter William Rose, who ended up getting a, 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 I believe an Oscar nomination for best original screenplay for this. Um, 
it's it's a good movie. It's a good entertaining movie. Um, one that I wouldn't necessarily recommend to some people because it's one of those things where um, some people, you know, maybe it's a little bit too mainstream or or it's not pretentious enough for some people and then for others it might just be a little bit too old or or, or they don't connect to it um but i i just found it to be really delightful and and really enjoyable and once again another great performance from alec guinness um who i believe as gavin said and as i've read he was modeling his his role after uh after alistair sim who um, you may recognize that name if you've been a long-time listener to this podcast because he was um, Ebenezer Scrooge in one of the uh, in a, a Christmas Carol, one of the the many iterations of a Christmas Carol, which I covered on this podcast a, a few years ago, and put a pin on that because we'll get back to it much later. Um, this was the first big uh, big screen role for Peter Sellers, um, who plays I believe it's the Mister Robinson character in this. Um, uh, yeah, Harry, a.k.a. Mr. Robinson, um, which if you're used to Peter Sellers from The Pink Panther or um, Dr. Strangelove or um, being there, you know, uh, it's, it's it's a very pretty straightforward performance. Um, and, and everybody really, I mean, even Cecil Parker, who played Claude, uh, Herbert Lom, who played Lewis, um, Danny Green, who played One Round, um, and and uh, Katie Johnson, especially Katie Johnson as as the old lady Mrs. Wilberforce, um, they're all wonderful performances that are supplemented or are supplementing um, the, the the excellent writing of just crafting who these characters are, um, and even costume design and directing you kind of upon the introduction of all of them during their first uh, their first quote unquote music lesson uh, or rehearsal. Just based on their costume, based on how they act, we know what kind of characters they're going to be. And, and they're, they're borderline caricature, but they're sort of exaggerated characters. And yet we know not everything about them, but we sort of know what to expect. And the film does a wonderful job in the first 20 minutes of just laying down the groundwork of what kind of film this is going to be and what the rules are going to be of this world that we're living in um with a, it's it's a very clever reveal of alec guinness's character you see him as kind of like an outline a shadowy figure who's kind of stalking around the house um that introductory scene with mrs wilberforce talking to the police and just kind of laying the groundwork like okay it's this sweet old woman who everyone kind of knows her around town the police don't really take her seriously they they respect her but they also kind of take everything she says with a grain of salt and how that's going to pay off at the end it establishes this world very early. We know what we're going to be getting, and it's absolutely delightful. Um, and it's not something, once again, that changes the cinematic landscape of every of, of anything really. But it does take, you know, um, you know, it's an example of good writing and of, of great casting, of, of wonderful performances, um, and of cinematic comedic language and just how to. How to Tell a Joke, and also a great example of, of black comedy. It takes all those things and it makes a little film, and you, you sit down and you watch it for about 90 minutes, and you think, like, well, that was that was fun. You know, you have you have a good time, and it's, it's not necessarily escapism, but it's one of those things where it's just... It, it's good cinema, you know? And, and, and I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate that, especially coming after um, October, where... I feel like maybe I keep saying this, so maybe you're under the impression that I hated Dare Argento. And I, and I didn't, but it's just he has a very particular style that wasn't really 
my kind of style. His films weren't really my cup of tea. And so this whole thing of the the auteur-driven cinema and and um, movies that have to have a message and have to be a work of art, like that's great if they do, but they don't always have to be that way. Um, and there's something to be said about a, a really good movie that you just you sit down and you watch and, and you respect the craft that goes into it. Um, I'm reminded of... Uh, this is a weird connection, but I guess it kind of makes sense. Do you remember the, the Coen Brothers remake of True Grit from 2010, I believe it was? I remember seeing it, and I thought it was a very good movie, but it's like I, I, there's nothing. there was nothing about that movie that was like, this is going to go down as one of the all-time greats. It might not even go down as one of the all-time greats in the Coen Brothers uh, repertoire, which maybe film Twitter has... Since revisited because with the Ballad of Buster Scruggs coming out, it seems like film Twitter has nothing better to do than rank the Coen Brothers movies. Um, so I don't even think it's within the Coen Brothers context. It is one of those which is going to be remembered or stand the test of time. But there's something to be said about like you made a great movie or you made a, even a good movie. You, you have your good performances, you have your editing, you have it shot well, you have all this kind of all these elements working together just to make a good movie basically. Um, the the bridge there being that, of course, in 2004, the Coen brothers remade The Lady Killers, um, which is, I, I believe, up there in regards to people who are a, a, a film of the Coen brothers, which is a disappointment or, or one which is maybe one of their quote-unquote worst. Of course, the worst of the Coen brothers is better than most things I've ever done in my entire life. Um, but The Lady Killers was just, it was a lot of fun. Um, and in order for it to be fun, you first have to have these good comic characters. Um, Billy Wilder uh, was was I don't know if he was famous for saying it, but I know that he he said and he was very much of the of the mindset that a great comedic actor can do drama uh, and can do it very well, but a great dramatic actor cannot necessarily do comedy. And it says something to the to the fact of like in order to do comedy well, you have to have. A character that you know very well that that, that they at least that the audience can know very well you have to have a um, because the comedy is going to come from how these personalities kind of play against each other and how they interconnect and how they how they how they work together um, humor is going to come from that contrast from that tension from that conflict basically so if you don't have an actor who knows how to inhabit that character and how to make that character work within the context of other characters, that person is going to be able to do that in a dramatic sense, too. They're just not playing it for laughs. But if, um, but uh, a good dramatic actor who doesn't... Well, I mean, they'll know how to inhabit a character, but there's still something to be said about comedic timing and, 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 and performance and knowing when to say a joke and when not to say a joke and when... Um, to use a, a facial feature, I and mean, I'm, I'm not going to get into the nitty gritty of what makes a good comedic performance, but um, basically, it's it's just a way of saying that um, a good comedy cannot be a good comedy unless there are first good characters, and you can't have good characters unless you first have good actors portraying those characters. And this film absolutely does that. Um, it, it was just it was just absolutely delightful, kind of seeing how how all these. These um, <clears throat> robbers are not just interacting with each other, but how all their personalities are either meshing with or bouncing off the Mrs. Wilberforce character. And it's very clear early on who are those characters going to be. Of course, Alec Guinness's character is going to contrast with her. And of course, um, the, the character that plays Claude is going to 
smash against her. Um, if nothing else, you can just see it visually, but if you had it muted, you can see her. She's wearing a lot of white, and she's very old and frail and small, and Claude comes in. He's dressed head-to-toe in black, including with this um, intimidating uh, fedora hat. And you just immediately, you can just take a, a, a still frame from the first the two of them meeting, and you immediately kind of know how this relationship is going to work. That's That's good cinematic language using that that's just good visualization that's good once again good casting and, and a, a, a good example of the craft um and then of course uh one round is you know his personality is a bit different um he's he's a bit more gentle despite his name and his uh his, his physical appearance and so that is a, a relationship in which uh turns out to be sp- pretty friendly uh basically even to the point where at the end he's got a gun um protecting her from his other um his from his comrades basically who are who are trying to kill her so that they can get the money for themselves um and and what makes this film so funny is is that is that band of characters and their interplay with the world and how their relationships with each other change because of this (laughs) this really immovable force which is Mrs. Wilberforce, um, the the name being, I guess, somewhat ironic or or, or um, uh, telling. Now that I'm, I've just said those things out loud, um, but what's interesting is how this woman basically, she just is. She's the same person throughout the entire film. She doesn't really change. She, I, I mean, I guess you can say that she she changes, or at least she be she becomes more of herself when she discovers. Um, the the true machinations of these you know these musicians that were rehearsing in her house, um, but she just is who she is, and the, these five criminals change um, as people and as compatriots with each other because of her remaining exactly who she is, and. That's hilarious and that's wonderful because this film starts out like, you know, it seems like Mrs. Wilberforce is going to be our, our main character, our protagonist, and she is. She's the one that we're rooting for. She's the one that we are so thrilled when she gets the 60,000 pounds at the end. Um, but she, basically, all she does to achieve that is just be herself, is have a, a moral compass and stick to it, um, is express her opinions is be a little bit naive and absent-minded when she keeps wondering like why is it taking so long for the police to get here well it's because nobody went to go get the police um so she's innocent and earnest and because of that we empathize with her we relate to her we like her because that empathy and that naivete sorry it's it's the the christmas season on my mind so i was mixing up naivete and and nativity uh (laughs) as one does i suppose um but she is sort of this constant in this storm of immorality that's around her and her remaining the same is is sort of um a a, a ballast in a way or or sort of a, a, a a a an anchor um that's that's the wrong metaphor but basically her just staying the way she is is causing these other people to kind of go crazy around her. Um, and w- once again, there, there's there's black comedy to be found in this story because it's not just a robbery, but it's a robbery and then five men are planning to kill this sweet little old lady who is 
as they see it, the only block or hindrance before they can ultimately get away with 60,000 pounds. Um, and she frustrates their plans. She throws off the dynamic uh, in this relationship between all five of them by basically being her. It's entirely unintentional. She just is who she is, and that fucks all these guys up. Um, eventually to the point where one of them is trying to defend her from the other people, where one of them is um, trying to come clean to her about their intentions so he can sneak away with the money. Um, and where another one is pretending to be on her side, but she's really not. And, and then they eventually get to a point where nobody wants to be the one to kill her because being confronted with this force of morality, of, of, of goodness, of innocence at the very least, is sort of throwing them for a loop because they are kind of bungling criminals. Like, yes, they, they pull off a bank heist. Well, not a bank heist, I'm sorry. They pull off this... This uh, this heist uh, of all this money, but also as this money as this heist is going along, there's also this um, humorous cutting back and forth between the train station and all three or four of these people trying to cram into this tiny phone booth, which was one of the moments that I was laughing out loud because it's just these are people who these are guys who they have a plan, but if it doesn't stick to the plan, they don't know what to do. They're <laughs> They're very good in a certain context, and Mrs. Wilberforce takes them out of that context, uh, disrupts their plan, and, and, and after that, they just they don't know what to do, um, and that's absolutely delightful. Uh, and, and you get scenes like um, all of them trying to cram into a phone booth to kind of um, hear what's going on at the train station as, as the money's coming back. Um, all of them kind of sitting in, in a car circling the block because they weren't prepared for her to get out of the car and yell at a street vendor who was in turn yelling at a horse who was eating from his barrow. Um, they don't know what to do when, uh, you know, they're, they're all drawing uh, short matches or to whoever gets to see who, sorry, when they're drawing to see who gets the short match to see who's going to kill her and then none of them want to do it. Um, it's this uh, objective democratic process and yet none of them want to go through with it it's just she takes all their plans and she tips them on their head completely unintentionally um which makes it all the more satisfying when um of course the police don't believe her about this elaborate yarn about these five criminals at the end because of um the earlier story that she was telling about the spaceship in 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 the in her friend's yard um which is a story they were never taking seriously to begin with so of course they're not going to take seriously this this story about this elaborate heist and these five men who somehow conveniently mysteriously disappeared and oh yes yes mrs wilberforce and of course you know you can take the sixty thousand pounds and and so she does and she walks off and she leaves her umbrella um and I, i'm actually quite thankful i have to say that this film didn't turn out that that it was a ruse the whole time that she knew exactly what she was doing but she was playing the part of the old innocent naive woman i like the fact that she was the old innocent naive woman and it was just these men these supposedly hardened criminals did not know how to deal with the fact that she was an old innocent naive woman i find that so wonderful because it is in a way sort of a 
kind of a, a spiritual translation of what these Ealing studio films have been about, which is the common man against a larger system. And, and uh, in the previous two films, it was much more of a, of a, of a, uh, a, not a blatant, but an obvious sort of systemic thing that our protagonists were fighting against. You had Louis in Kind Hearts and Coronets was, uh, you know, kind of trying to upset the aristocracy, uh, or this idea of royalty. Um, in uh, The Man in the White Suit, you had Alec Guinness's character who is fighting kind of against two systems of, of capitalism and, and of unions and, and of this idea of, of sort of the, the big... Um, corporation kind of trying to snuff out and smother small business innovation. Um, and then in this one, there wasn't really that um, that sort of obvious systemic conflict, but you can say that it was maybe uh, a, 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 a mental or emotional um, sort of common man versus... Uh, uh, the, the larger system sort of thing, at least in the sense of the expectations of five male criminals versus an old widow. Um, and of course, well, like how, how, how was that supposed to go? Well, that's supposed to go that the five men get away and they very likely murder this old woman without a care in the world. And yet here's this common man, or, or in this instance, a common woman who is fighting against the system of expectations um, if you wanted to be sort of um, pretentious about it and say that it's uh, fight, that she's fighting against a patriarchy, um, I'm not sure that's an, an intentional thing. But if you see that in there, I think that's valid as well. And that's certainly a thread that I would be interested in exploring. But really, it's sort of a system of expectations um, that she is unintentionally even... Um, fighting against, of so this common person who is fighting against the system of, of expectations. Um, and it's almost sort of this system of good and morality versus the, this, this, this system of immorality and, and of criminality, um, which I find um, quite entertaining and, and quite delightful as well. And, and you could even say that um, a system that she is not receiving help from it is law enforcement it is, is sort of the local civil servants you know are supposed to be protecting her and they don't take her seriously they didn't take her seriously at the beginning of the film they don't they especially don't take her seriously at the end of the film and yet she prevails at the end she is still alive because at the end of this film all five of these uh, robbers are dead um some of whom, well, actually, no, all of them by thine own hands, and and all of them at some in some way have ended up in the the <laughs> the uh, an empty train car being taken off to God knows where. I mean, she is alive. Um, she's alive with her three birds, um, and sixty thousand pounds. And what's great is that she recognizes that she recognizes at the end that she came out on top because she takes that banknote and she puts it in. Uh, the cup of the beggar, um, the the starving artist out there. She knows. She leaves her umbrella behind because she and she says, oh, "I can buy a dozen more now." She can buy way more than a dozen, but she just has that 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 small, innocent, wonderful mindset that she's like, "Well, I I can buy a few more now," because she doesn't aspire to be more than she is, and she doesn't become or is more than she is, and that's what makes us connect with her, and that's what makes us root for her, and that's what makes her successful and ultimately what makes us so happy about her success 
um, at the very end. And, it, and it's, it's, it's absolutely wonderful. Um, and I was so, I was so entertained while I was watching this movie. Um, and, and like I said, it didn't, it didn't do anything new per se, but it did something well. And that's super enjoyable. Um, there was, there was a, a funny moment in in this movie where, uh, I thought there was a, a, an homage to Kind Hearts and Coronets. There's a scene early in the film, and I should have taken a picture of this and posted it on the Facebook page, but I'm sorry that I did not. Um, but there's a scene, uh, very early on when, I, I believe it's when, uh, Mrs. Wilberforce is, is showing, um, Alec Guinness's, uh, Professor Marcus around the house, um, when he meets the uh, the birds in the, in the living room or, or her kind of living space. And they walk past the fireplace, and the camera pans with them. It's a very slight pan, um, but it pans with them as they go across and then holds for not even a second. But it, it's not even long enough where they walk off the frame, but it's long enough where when it follows them and it stops and they keep walking enough where they're sort of framed to the left, which is... An awkward sort of place to frame them, and so you think that your attention shouldn't necessarily be drawn to them and where they're going because the camera's not following them anymore. But your 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 attention should be drawn to somewhere in the center of the frame, and what is in the center of the frame is above the, I believe it's a fireplace, um, but there's a, a a few pictures that are hanging on the wall, and one of them in the center is a framed photo of what we are led to believe. Well, I don't even know if we're led to believe as much as she says it, is a, a photo of Mrs. Wilberforce's late husband who uh, who died, she says, uh, she, he, he died at sea. He sank with a ship. Um, but according to her, he sank with a ship, I think it was sometime in the 30s, um, fighting a war, uh, which would have put that death before what happened. Well, no, maybe it did. Anyway, because here's what I'm thinking. I was wondering if that picture of her late husband was an homage to Kind Hearts and Coronets because it looks very similar to um, one of the Alec Guinness characters from that movie. It was the captain who his ship collided with another ship and he his ship, shank, his ship sank and he went down giving the salute that, you know, the that very famous picture which is the cover photo for, um, or was the cover photo for I Do Movies Badly for November um, and uh, was also the one that almost famously killed Alec Guinness. Um, but just that idea, uh, or not even that idea, but it, it seemed like maybe that was an homage because it's the same pose. He's, he's standing there saluting. He's got the same very similar facial hair. He's got the very same uniform. And the fact that the camera kind of stops and lingers on it slightly, it made me think... Huh, maybe this is a, a an homage to Kind Hearts and Coronets. Not to say that these films exist in the same universe, because I believe um, with the math and when that movie is supposed to take place and this one takes place, I, I'm not trying to tr- to presuppose that that she was married to that family line or anything like that. But it just seemed like it might have been a fun little wink at like, hey, we've got a sense of humor. Look at us, kind of thing. Which of course they have a sense of humor. They've been making comedies. Um, but that's just something that uh, that occurred to me, and I just wondered if that was intentional or if I was just, as I often do, reading too deeply into things. But um, that's uh, that's mostly what I have to say with the Lady Killers. Like I said, it, it's one of those where I, I 
this is not a, a full uh, an episode, which is the standard length of the past ones, where I can ramble on for 40, 45 minutes about things. It, it was one that, um, if, I'm, if I'm trying to pick a favorite for this month, I'd probably have to say The Man in the White Suit was my favorite one. Um, but this one is is absolutely delightful, and like I said, it, it's it's not one that I'm necessarily going to recommend or or um, rewatch anytime soon. But I, that's not a bad thing because it still was a good movie. It still did what it did, and it did it very well. Um, and so that's I think that's that's great, and that's fine, and that that just goes to show that not every movie that you have to watch has to be something which was the important thing or the milestone thing, or the one that made history. It just has to be something which is, I don't even want to say good, but it has to be something which you can take something out of it, that you can connect with, that you can derive some type of truth or meaning or entertainment from. Um, that's that's what I, I think makes this film valuable. That's what, make, that's what's, that's what should make films um, valuable viewing experiences to you as well. Um, if you uh, want to rewatch Lady Killers, or you want to see it for the first time after listening to this episode, and you don't mind that I spoiled it for you, um, it is free to stream if you have um, a Stars subscription. So you can actually find it through Stars um, or through the uh, or through Amazon if you just link it to your Stars account. If you don't have Stars, like many of you don't, um, perhaps some of you signed up for it because you wanted to see American Gods and you forgot about it, um, and now you're paying regularly for Stars, you can certainly go there and find it out. Uh, but if you don't have stars, it's um, available for rental or purchase on the usual outlets, Amazon, uh, Vudu, iTunes, Google Play, um, and the PlayStation Store. So plenty of places to find it for uh, rental or purchase. And then, of course, you can go to stars once again if uh, you have a subscription you want to see it for free. So that does it for um, the Lady Killers, which means it does it for November, which means we are done with uh, comedy from Ealing Studios, which means we are looking forward into the future of next week for our next theme. Um, and it is December. I am an unapologetic Christmas fan. Um, the reason that I did not start celebrating before Thanksgiving, as I have often done, um, my girlfriend's birthday was not until uh, this year. It fell on Black Friday, but it is... Uh, it, on other years, it has not been a Black Friday, but she refused to let me celebrate anything um, before Thanksgiving and before her birthday. So now that both of those are in her rearview mirror, both of them, by the way, were absolutely delightful. I hope that your Thanksgiving holiday was absolutely lovely and restful uh, and blessed as well. Um, so now that we're past that, we are moving into December, in which I can now... Um, fully bear my red and green soul as a Christmas aficionado, not even Christmas aficionado, a Christmas enthusiast. And thus, um, I wanted to bring on a guest to talk about movies which would tie in with that. So the pin that I stuck in Alex Sim in A Christmas Carol should give you a hint into next week's guest. Uh, this guest for December, he was um, a guest uh, back in, I believe, December of 2016, um, uh, not my first December of doing this podcast, but the second one. Um, he is the, um, the author of Have Yourself a Movie, Little Christmas, and one of the co-hosts of the Linoleum Knife podcast, Alonzo Geraldi, will be joining me again um, this December for talking about Christmas movies. But last time we did uh, the classic ones, 
you know, some of the ones that, uh, that I hadn't gotten around to seeing, which were, which were you know, the, the classic Christmas movies. We did uh, the original Miracle on 34th Street, the Alistair Sim uh, Christmas Carol, um, and then um, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, we're doing something a little bit different this year, uh, just because I didn't want to do the same thing, and because I, I felt I needed to take advantage of this man's insane mental repertoire when it comes to all things um, cinematically Christmas. So we're going to be doing, um, he's going to be talking to me about uh, offbeat Christmas movies, and while I will say I don't, we didn't fully flesh out what the idea of offbeat is defined as, um, I'm kind of thinking of them as not your standard um, sappy, saccharine, or even sort of inspirational Christmas movies, which, you know, have those, those themes of togetherness and something which is sort of holy and family and that sort of thing, but just something which might be a bit off kilter, uh, maybe something that feels kind of inappropriate. Um, and, uh, and, but the way that we arrived at Christmas was just, uh, you know, where, where the, the, the way that I defined it was, um, it doesn't have to be all about Christmas, but Christmas had to play some significant narrative part in the film. So maybe it was the um, inciting incident or a very important emotional or narrative scene happens around Christmas. Um, so that way it's not just window dressing, but it is important uh, to the story that is being told. Um, if you want an example maybe of what we're thinking of, um, some people might say... Die Hard, some people might say Batman Returns, um, or, you know, even something like a, something which isn't necessarily uh, dark, uh, like Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Um, so, for instance, that movie takes place around Christmas, and it doesn't, uh, you know, it isn't necessarily apparent in every single scene, but remember the inciting incident of, of that film is um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character is, initially finds his big break because he is trying to break into a toy store around Christmas to get something for his nephew, has to escape them from the police, runs into a, an audition accidentally, and um, is brought out to L.A. because everyone thinks that he is an actor. So that would kind of be the, the uh, a good example of an offbeat Christmas film. Um, it is... Christmas is important to the narrative. It gets us into the narrative, but it is... Um, it, the, the lessons, the journey do not necessarily have to be Christmas-related. But that's what we're talking about because it is Christmas, but I also wanted to do something different and because I wanted an excuse to get Alonzo Duralde back on this podcast. So that was a long-winded way uh, of kind of trying to pump you up for next week's episode, for next month's theme, and to try and maybe help you get into the, the holiday spirit a little bit. So um, that does it for Ealing um, Studios comedies i hope you have enjoyed them as much as i have enjoyed them of course i always want to hear from you whether you did or whether you didn't did not enjoy them whether you think that some of my interpretations and analysis are way off base or spot on it is easy enough to reach out to me you can email me at you do movies badly at gmail.com find me on twitter at nolan fixes teeth um, catch up on back back episodes of I Do Movies Badly uh, on iTunes. Um, go to battleshippretension.com in the podcast drop-down menu and find I Do Movies Badly. You can chime in in the comment fields there. Um, I try to respond to those comments as much as possible. Or just uh, find me on Podbean. Uh, that's the place that, the server that hosts my podcast at idomoviesbadly.podbean.com. So thanks for listening, everybody. Please be sure to tune in next week where I'll be talking to Alonzo Duralde about some offbeat Christmas films and where hopefully I will be just a little bit less ignorant.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.